Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. For a large number of mental health professionals and their patients, the reporting of hearing voices commonly results in the assignment of a psychiatric diagnosis, which is then followed by the prescription of antipsychotic medications. For many people, the medications do reduce or remove the voices, but the picture may not be that simple. Certainly not all those with voices respond to medications, and indeed some may not even need the medications. So then this raises the question as to what is the real cause or role of the voices, and accordingly we have to wonder if other techniques or treatments better foster more of an acceptance or recovery. By my experiences, these issues are not being discussed much in the United States. Joining us today is Dr. Marius Rome, who has studied and written a great deal on hearing voices. He was also a professor of psychiatry at the University of Limburg in the Netherlands, and until his recent retirement, he was one of the founders of an organization known as Intervoice, or the International Community for Hearing Voices. That website is www, and it's one word, intervoice, I-N-T-E-R-V-O-I-C-E, online.org intervoiceonline.org, one word. Dr. Rome, thank you so much for joining us. It's nice to take the initiative to have this topic discussed. It's our pleasure. Now, sir, before we go any further, as we often say in this podcast, how one manages a clinical condition, such as hearing voices, needs to be done in consultation with one's own physician. We hope that you get some insight and ideas from our discussion, but the final treatment decision has to be between the patient and the doctor. Okay. Dr. Rome, I've intentionally not used the term auditory hallucinations in the introduction, and yet I'm sure that's what many people are thinking. Is voice hearing synonymous with auditory hallucinations? Yeah, the voice hearing that we have studied is synonymous with auditory hallucinations, but we don't use that name, auditory hallucinations, because hearing voices is just what the people perceive, and then it is not nice to give it a strange name because why should you? So give us a little history if you would then. How is it that Intervoice developed? What did you see that made you start to see that there was a different avenue that needed to be researched and a different technique for treating people with voices? Give us a little bit of the history please. Uh, It started with one patient in 1985 who was not very content with my approach as a psychiatrist because as a psychiatrist I had learned to use the uh, experience of the patient as a a tool to come to a diagnosis. And so I also only was interested in the fact that she heard voices or the voices she heard had the characteristics of an auditory hallucination. And then you look to other symptoms and then you construct, in fact, in psychiatry, a diagnosis. But she thought she would like to be helped with her problems with her voices. And that we don't do in psychiatry because we were even trained not to go into that experience. And that's the change because then after some years of talking to her, she gave me more and more information and I didn't know exactly what to do with all that information. But she also had some troubles with the suicide, so I had to do something to keep her hopes going and she didn't react much on medication. So then I brought together different people hearing voices because in my practice I met quite a lot of people hearing voices because we had an aftercare service for people with chronic problems in mental health. 
So that started them to listen to these people, and then it became clear that they can tell quite clearly about their experience. The only thing is they don't know how to cope with it. Then we went to the radio and asked for a talk show, because that's the only way you can reach people in their privacy. But this was, then she told on the television, not radio, the television, on a talk show about her experience, and I said psychiatry has not much to offer. So please, if there is somebody who can cope with their voices, we'd like to get into contact with them, because we all don't know what to do with them. And then very many people reacted. So that was the start that we got interested because a lot of people heard voices who could cope with them. And that we didn't know at the time because psychiatrists in the sense that we are used to use hearing voices as a symptom of an illness. And thereafter, so the study started and showed us that hearing voices is a rather common human variation and experience in about 4% of the population. And so on and so on, we got more interested in this phenomenon. Is there an association then between hearing voices and having a mental illness, or are we talking about perhaps in some ways two different categories? Yeah, we are in some ways in categories because we've discovered to compare people hearing voices who became patients with people hearing voices who never became a patient and didn't need any help. So then we found out that the experience is exactly the same. Only the trouble is that in patients, they are afraid of their voices, and that later on became clear because these voices in patients are mostly related to traumatic experiences in their lives which never is asked for because we were used not to ask about where the voices might have started, what has happened at that time. And so we learned to do that later because voice hearing is not a symptom in itself of an illness or of madness, but hearing voices is a reaction to a problem in life with overwhelming emotions as a consequence. That is such a fascinating concept because the way I was trained, and I would dare say the way most of us look at this, if we have a patient walk in who's hearing voices, the assumption is that we're looking at a psychotic process that needs an antipsychotic medication. And yet you're talking about something that somebody mentioned is beyond dopamine. I love the phrase. It's beyond dopamine. Yeah, okay, whatever phrase you like, (laughs) but it's anyhow beyond illness. Because 4% of the general population, and that is quite often now confirmed by research, uh, the epidemiological research of general populations, that hearing voices is apparent in about 4% of the population, and only a part of them have any problems with their voices, and only a very small part should get a real diagnosis as we are used to use in psychiatry. So you, you see on all the number of people hearing voices, one in six could be diagnosed. The others have no psychiatric illness. So if 
someone were to come to a, a psychiatrist or other mental health practitioner, or even here in the United States, a lot of uh, internists treat a multitude of psychiatric illnesses. See, there I yeah. use the term psychiatric illness. It may not be a psychiatric illness. How does one differentiate? How does What are the symptoms that say, okay, this person needs medication versus this person doesn't? Do you have a, a, some guidelines on that? That's too simple, but I have some guidelines. I, mean, we, I used to have an interview with them about the characteristics of the voices, and the interview is published in the book Making Sense of Voices, and we will put it on the Internet on our website. It's now in Dutch on the website, but we'll put it on in English too. And it is, Intervoice has it on the website also. So we have an interview with the patient. Anyhow, it's not about the form of the interview, but it's about to be interested, what you are not used to as a psychiatrist, into the content and the characteristics, like how many voices do you hear? What are the character traits of these voices, like age and sex, and how, how frequent do these voices talk to you, and what do they say? Can you give an example? When have they started, like you do with all symptoms, also would do, in fact, when it first started in your life, and what has happened at that time? And so on, we have a schedule of interviewing the experience, not the symptom side, but the experience side. And then you come to the conclusion that this has to do with emotions and with memories people have experienced in their life because of certain overwhelming experiences, mostly traumatic but sometimes also a conflict of, yeah, like in adolescence, they might have a conflict about good and bad because that's a, a development stage where you ask yourself those questions and some have great difficulties because they, they are not very secure about themselves and their role in society. And that would, I guess, also require an understanding of the, perhaps a spiritual or other cultural significance to the voices. I guess yeah. that needs to be explored as well. Yeah. Very much so. I know that when I was in training and trained in New York City, we had a large number of people who were Hispanic, but a lot of them would, uh, these ladies would come in and we would have to get the residents who were also Hispanic and they could understand the shall we say, hallucinations of the voices that these people were hearing. And uh, it was a cultural thing. It was a tremendously important uh, lesson for all of us. But it's also in our normal Western society that it has a meaning. That's the thing. The voices give a message and they remember in patients about what has happened to them in troublesome uh, atmospheres. And in non-patients who never become a patient, they are more advisors and a source of inspiration. What about in children? Children is the same. It's about 80% of the children have had troubles in their lives. And when they can, as a reaction to the troubles, on which mostly the adults has not gone into because, yeah, they didn't perceive it as a problem, but it, might, it was more a problem for the child than for the parents. So then we developed also the same interview, but translated in a kind of language that was more open also for children. And then we interviewed the children with the parents together, so the parents learn that the child knows quite a lot about that experience. And then, in that sense, the whole family got more interested and got another attitude towards hearing voices and towards often the problem 
that lay at their roots. And then 60, in our research over three years, 60% of the children lost their voices. And then some years later, nearly all lost their voices. There are only a few small number that kept the voices, and they mostly were handicapped by problems which are not that easy to solve. That gives more long-time problems in your emotional balance, like sexual abuse, like physical abuse. Well, that is rather seldom when you look at the whole scope of children. You made a very interesting comment in our correspondence, and I'll quote you it because I think it's incredibly important. You said non-psychiatric mental health workers can probably more easily help voice hearers because they have not been trained not to talk about voices like psychiatrists are trained. Mm-hmm. That, that struck me, I must say. I, I'd like to more of your thoughts yeah. about that. That was intriguing. Which I experienced myself, it took me quite some time to change my attitude because you are trained as a psychiatrist not listening to the people's voices, not asking what they really hear, what they really say, what what characteristics they have, and non-psychiatrically educated people are not trained that way. So they are more open to normalize. Like that was the great help of Sandra Escher, which I worked together with, that she was originally a journalist and she was used to interview a person to learn the person, to learn to know the person better. And as a professional, you like to interview a person to confirm your own thoughts about the person. That's quite a difference. And that is a great difference in attitude that you start first before diagnosis, to be interested in the person and what he is experiencing. So you want to know the person better, not the illness only. That's the great difference, I think. There are several bullet points which I found very fascinating in reading about your project and your work. And the one that struck me mostly is that people have to know that recovery is possible, that they don't have to be left alone out there floating about if our standard psychiatric interventions fail, that recovery is possible, voices are real. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that because I think that's the message that we need to deliver to people. We have experience with many voices. We have done the research about with 400 voices. But accepting the voices is a condition sine qua non for recovery. If you accept them and you want to, to learn to know them better, and that we stimulate voices, and the voices who recover also have done that, that they accept their voices as personal. Because each voice is different uh, between the different voices. They don't hear all the same voice. That would more a biological illness. But they all hear different voices. They all have their own personal voice who tells them personal things. Then we normalize it and say, hey, but you are not the only one in this world. There are 4% of the normal population that hears voices. So it's about that you learn to cope. And we have techniques to learn to cope with the voices that reduces anxiety, like is done in cognitive psychology. But then we take one step further, and then we discuss the relationship with the the traumatic experiences that might, or other things that might have happened, because the characteristics of the voices point to things that have happened. But then you have to be a little bit more trained. I can't do that in one minute in an interview. But anyhow, we so systematically work on 
the steps from acceptation of the voices as a personal one, getting to be interested in them and learning to know them better, less getting interested in the relationship with one's own life history, and then recognizing the emotions the voices express, because that are the emotions people have much difficulty with. And in that way, you learn to cope as well with the voices as with the problem that lay at the root of the hearing voices experience. So there is absolutely the plain, old-fashioned need for the doctor to really to get to know his patient yeah. in a way that, unfortunately, is probably not done often enough. That's true. It, interestingly, in, I, in the year 2008, I think in September, the British paper, The Independent, ran an article that nearly two-thirds of schizophrenics have never been offered talking therapy at all. Yeah, and that's true. And that's, that's kind of scary because yeah. we all know that not everybody does respond to medications, and yet we're... we're no, no, there's a much people are neglected in this way, but neglected because we don't, didn't know before, but we do know now that there are other backgrounds to the phenomenon of hearing voices, so it becomes time to change. And that is not anti-psychiatrist, what that is, to learn as a psychiatrist, to inform yourself about what the patient is in fact experiencing instead of walking over that part. Because that is also for the solution of schizophrenia, we will have to split it up into the symptoms because the symptoms has a background. The illness, we did never find the background for. This is very interesting and very fascinating, and I, I would like people to know that you recently have published a book called Living with Voices, 50 Stories of Recovery, which goes into this in greater detail, and, of course, the Internet site, which is intervoiceonline.org. Dr. Marius Rome was one of the founders of the organization that is known as the International Community for Hearing Voices, and, as I said, inter intervoiceonline.org. Fascinating work, sir. You opened up a line of thinking that is important and necessary for both doctors and patients. I thank you so much for being with us. This has been extremely interesting. It was great of you that you interviewed us, me and Sandra Asher, because we are always doing this work together. <laughs> it is my pleasure, sir. Thank okay. you.